Welcome to a surprise bonus episode of The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and it's so great getting to bring you such a special episode. Today's guest is my old friend, Gary Jarman of The Cribs. I've known the guys for a few years now, and it's one of those things that just truly blows my fucking mind. They're one of the bands that got me through college. I mean, hell, a show that I saw them play way back in 2009 is still one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. The band are soon releasing their eighth album called Night Network, which will be out on November 20th. It's an album that sees them at top form after dealing with some, you know, typical music industry bullshit. I got to say, you know, like getting to live with this album for the last couple weeks, it was such a privilege, especially because it reminded me of why I love this band so much. The songs are emotionally vigorous, energetic, and they feel vital. Night Network feels like a body of songs that had to be exercised, and that's exactly what I chat with Gary about. Along with talking about the album, we also chat about, you know, the state of the world and just generally catch up as two friends. Be sure to subscribe, especially if this is your first time listening to the podcast. Next week will be the season finale for season one, and you won't want to miss that. All right, let's get into it. This is The New Exchange with Gary Jarman of The Cribs. Enjoy. It's it's great getting to catch up with you. It's um it's been a long while, and you know obviously the world is still on fire as of late October. How are you holding up right now? Yeah, well, the, my current day start like look, my current day starts off like every other day does. When you're trying to run an album campaign remotely and virtually, is like to- uh, total carnage because I before I go to I mean I'm in Portland, so I'm eight hours behind the West Coast. Uh, so I'm eight hours behind the UK, so that means that I have to stay up until like two o'clock in the morning, sending emails and answering calls from the UK team, and then I get up and first thing on the morning, I just know that I'm gonna have a glut of emails or things to answer or like or things to deal with. And this morning, I woke up like so like. I always get stuff in place, I make plans, like try and keep things running as smooth as I can, and then wake up and like it's all burned down. And this morning <laughs> I woke I woke up to a complete nightmare this morning, like when it came to like logistical stuff for the new album. And that's how my day started. And I've literally just got off a call now with the UK team and then just ju- jumped straight on this. So to be honest, man, this is actually like a real nice tonic for me because like I found myself um quite isolated um, personality wise I've never been very outgoing and like and certainly like the band has never been like the sort of people to put everything out there online but I've found myself like really enjoying interacting with people more because like I haven't been able to do it so like I've, I was doing South American press all this week and like I, I really enjoyed it it made me feel good to speak to people and like and you know and speaking to you I mean I, I was psyched when they stopped booking because I was like I actually think that I actually think that you might have been one of the, one of our first ever interviews we did in the U.S. From what I remember, yeah, so, like way back in like maybe two thousand ten or something like that. And yeah, I don't remember, uh, but I, I I know that like you know it's for me it's just nice to like reconnect with people. It's like I, I've become I think I, I don't I don't know if this situation has made me become more social, but it's made me appreciate. It social contact a lot more 
which I think, you know, is probably true for everybody. But like just just even like online stuff with the band, it's like we did this like hotline that people could call to like just chat, you know. And I would honestly like once upon a time, I would have like found that to be like so terrifying. But it's actually I, I found it really nice, you know, because I think there's something to this is a great leveler in a lot of ways. And, you know, and everyone's in the same boat. And I, I've just I've enjoyed. Yeah, I, getting to speak to somebody outside of my house, uh, yeah. outside of my uh, immediate circle of people I'm, I see every day is, is great. As you can probably tell, I'm just rambling on now. So. <laughs> I love that you said level there, because as you were talking, I found myself thinking that like people who are listening who work in offices and have to coordinate calls across continents, I think they probably yeah. find it really trippy that they can relate to what you're going through right now, because it just Absolutely. shows. Yeah, no, and, and, and the same thing on like on loads of other levels, you know, and do you know that that's, I don't know, like I, I've just, in some ways, like I've never been this optimistic in my life. I've always been a pessimist, but I've I think it's been a coping mechanism that, like, I found myself really clinging on to the good stuff and having that sustain me, which I've never been like that. I've always been, like, a, a pessimist and, 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 and really beat myself up about things, whereas, like, I don't know, it's like, I think because things have been so chaotic and so so rough this year that I've just, yeah, I've just found myself, like, being, like, surprisingly optimistic to, like, keep myself and other people going, really, you know? Yeah, I think where I relate to you on that is that um, just by the nature of doing like, you know, journalism and like traveling and touring, you're forced to like, for me, and I imagine for you, you're forced to like, think like two, three, six months ahead. And I feel like as much as I love this career, it's always made it difficult for me to live in the moment. And I feel in this context of this, you know, the past couple of months, it's forced me to learn how to do that, whether I like it or oh, not. You're absolutely right, man. 100%, you know, and like, I've actually been listening to a lot of podcasts recently since this all started. I, I found that I preferred listening to podcasts than music. I because music, emo- music gets me so emotional and like uh, sentimental for things, uh, or it like provokes something in me. Whereas like listening to people talk, it's just that human. It's that human element. Like I'm just like, yeah, I, d- I just mi- I just miss I just miss like bullshitting people. <laughs> <laughs> Because that, that's a funny, that's a weird thing about like about everyday life. It's like you, you have you have like so many conversations that are just not important, and <laughs> it, but it is important. But it's not the, the, you're not talking about anything important. But it actually ends up being a really important part of just existing. You know, it's just like it's real. I don't know. I've been enjoying. I've been enjoying my interviews for once. I'm usually <laughs> I won't say I'm a bad interviewer. I, I wouldn't say I'm a bad interviewee, but I would say that I'm like definitely. Taciturn, whereas I'm less less so nowadays. Well, I'm sure this interview will end up surprising people after hearing that comment. But uh, I'm going to ask you about the record next. But before I do, I'm really curious just to know one more thing. Apart from, you know, dealing with the release of the album and, you know, being in the thick of that, what else has been occupying your time these last few days or weeks? Like, any new hobbies well, that's been interesting? Yeah, I want to say new hobbies, but, like, I've been, I've been boxing since... Uh, 2012 I, I took up boxing because i hated exercise and like, i genuinely hate exercise <laughs> what, 2012 we've been on top for our album brazen ball and like I, I was just mentally and physically like not in the best shape and i was like i need to do something i need to i need to like you know do something to sort of like make me healthier and like when johnny ma was in the band he's he's really into running and fitness and he would always try and get me to run with him and I would run, run with him occasionally, but I, I hate running. And I'll, I'll tell you the reason why. It's because 
when I'm running, all I'm thinking about is what I have to do when I get home. So it's like, <laughs> it's, yeah, so it's like it's not freeing for me. It's like oh. it's like actually like quite stress inducing. So so I, I, I always hated it. So I, I came home and I was like, look, I've got to do something. I was like, and I figured that I'd do boxing because I was like, it's the the hardest, most off, you know, like the furthest away from anything I would ever imagine doing. And I think part of that was like. That meant that if I failed, I had an excuse for failing. Also, because I sort of wanted to punish myself a little bit for like for not doing this, for, for taking so long to actually get my act together. It was almost like a penance kind of thing. So I took up boxing and actually had a, if I may say so, like I found that like I had a real flair for it and I actually loved it. But I had a tough time of it because like my uh, my beloved dog Gracie died at the start of summer, uh, in oh. at the start of July, and that really broke my heart because like. I mean, she was my baby for one thing, but but the other thing was that she was really good at keeping my spirits up. She was like super funny and like and, and super sweet. And she, every morning I would get her, she would get me out of bed. She would get me out of bed, get me going. She wanted to go for a walk twice a day. She would get me out of the house. Her enthusiasm for like getting out of the house was like something that like got me out of my own talker. You know, like it's like if she really wants to go out and go do things, it made me like less downbeat you know and and then I found myself needing that that time outside the house um so when she died it was it was really hard for me because like I had no excuse to go out so I became like yeah I would lay in bed until late and I wouldn't leave the house until like the afternoon I I, I felt kind of aimless without her but since we launched the since we announced the album I've, I've had a lot of things to keep me busy but it's like building a house on sand, you know? It's like it's the, the, the ground is just shifting underneath us all the time. Like, I'll get to one bit, like, this is awesome, this is going so well, and I'll wake up the next day and say, oh, we can't do that anymore, you know? So yeah. I'm busy now, but as far as, like, new hobbies, boxing is just, like, a ubiquitous part of my life now. So I think it would surprise some people. You know, sorry to hear about the loss of your dog, man. I know that can't be easy. Oh, man. It's funny because, like... It's 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 hard to speak to some people about it because like I don't think people some people understand and some people don't fully understand but like honestly I I was completely happy I still am completely happy it was my fortieth birthday two days ago yeah there's something about it on my on my birthday I just like I, it does it comes in waves every so often I just like really I just miss her so much but like but you know I. I do understand that, like, when you get a dog, you, you sort of take these things into account. But like, I I wasn't prepared for it, and I think I think the fact that the pandemic was on and the loneliness, it was like, yeah, it was it was brutal. I don't mind admitting it. I was like, a, I was I was wrecked from it, you know. But um, I, in some ways, I was I took comfort from that. So I was like, well, at least that proves that I really loved her and that we we, we really loved each other. Because like. I felt like I should have been as heartbroken as I was, you know, like yeah. it, it justified it in some ways. Yeah, we got yeah. a dog back in April, me and my girlfriends. It's the first dog I've ever owned. And I've wanted a dog since I was a little kid. And it might sound a little morbid, but there have been times over the course of having him where I have found myself thinking to the future of what it's going to be like when I have it. In my head, just to me, it goes like, yeah. oh, I'm going to be torn to bits. Like, I just know I'm going to. No, it, honestly, it's the. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Like, I, I'm, like I, I'm not ready to get a new one yet. Like, I, 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 I couldn't, you know. But, um, but I find myself, I'm one of them people now where when I'm out on the streets and, like, somebody else said, and look, I'm not an outgoing person. I'm a shy person. And when I'm out on the streets and somebody walks past with a dog, I'll always just be like, 
I'm so envious and I'll, I'll like make comments and like, <laughs> and, which is stuff I would, I would honestly, it's so outside of my personality, but it's like, but yeah, it's just, it, it's an amazing thing. Like what, what kind of dog did you get? What kind yes. of dog do you have rescue uh it's a rescue uh we got him from this uh place called hearts and bones they're here in brooklyn and uh he's a chihuahua predominantly mixed with some type of terrier we don't know what we think a rat terrier but he uh-huh. is yeah he's a lovely little guy he's two years old his name's diego his whole thing is that he's really calm inside and he almost acts like a cat but when he goes outside he turns into total dog mode and he's like a complete slave to his instincts and all that yeah, he's feisty. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Gracie, like she was part terrier. Like we don't, we don't, we don't know what she was. She was like, she was beautiful, but like such a bizarre combination. She like, she, we, we think she was part pointer because she was like uh, white and spotty, like a pointer is. But she also had brindle patches, in, uh, markings similar to a pit bull. But she wasn't big enough to be a pit bull, and she wasn't small. She wasn't big enough to be a, a pointer. But she definitely had a terrier attitude. Um, we think she might be part bulldog too, but she definitely had a terrier attitude. There's something, man. Like once you've had a terrier, like there's some, the, the, there's such a big personality that can be feisty and a little bit difficult to control. Like yeah. when they get you know, things kicking, but that's cool, man. Like I'm glad, I'm glad, he, I'm glad that you got. Uh, was that like part of this whole lockdown thing? So I know that a lot of a lot of the adoption agencies were like uh, running out of dogs because like. There was such a demand, like because people were lonely at home and stuff like that. Well, it's actually kind of interesting. We were planning on doing it last year, but then things got like really hectic. So we actually started prepping it like the first week of March, and then the second week of March is when all this happened. So we didn't get him till April. Right. But over the course of March, when all that madness was going on, it was like while we we're talking to like you know the adoption agency, it was kind of a thing of like yeah, we're still going to do this. And I remember at the time, me thinking, like, what is this going to be like, considering the world is, like, drowning right yeah. now. But I'm really glad we did it. Like, I honestly, it de- like, similar to you, how, you know, it helped you get outside and stuff. That's definitely been the same yeah. for me in a lot of ways, honestly. And, like, just, honestly, like, this is, like, a, a little thing, but it shouldn't be able to look. The comic relief that you get from a dog is just so... Honestly, it's so profound. It's like I can be so I can be really stressed out and like all in my own head about stuff that I'm dealing with. And she would just walk in the room and do something so ridiculous that it would just <laughs> they would just like it would it would charm me so much that I was like I would just forget my problems for a little while, you know. It's like yeah. it's the relief of a dog, like the, it's just like you can't replicate it with anything else that keep you <laughs> keep you happy, you know. No, it's so true. I'm going to start asking you about the music now because it, it's actually, I have to say, it really felt nice getting to have a new Cribs record after all this time. And I'm talking about Night Network, which sees a lot of growth from the band, but there's also this feeling that you guys were learning to be a band again. And I know that a lot has been said about how it was a tough time for you guys, but instead of that, I want to explore with you what it was like to be in the Foo Fighters studio working on this. Like, did it feel like you guys in some way were learning how to be the Cribs again? It, it's funny because, like, because of everything that we've been dealing with, like, so just in, in, in you know, basic terms, like, we'd, we'd had to, like, uh, take a couple of years out while we tried to get our rights back on our records because we'd separated with our management company and we'd, we'd gone through the books to be like, we need that, we need the rights back on the records. And, like, that was a big, that's a whole other story, but it was a big mission that we undertook. And anyway, we couldn't tour or, or do anything in that time. So that took about two years. And, you know, it was, a, 
an existential sort of time for us. We didn't really know if we'd be able to like come out the other side of it. So it was the positive that came out of that was we could see the band in the rearview mirror for the first time ever. Because like when you're, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about touring. When you're in a band, it's almost like you're on a train going through a tunnel. It's like it's this very linear existence and you're not and you don't get any time to, to look at the scenery because we've been forced off that track we actually got to like look back on the band and like you know and because we were trying to get the catalog back we actually had a real appreciation of the catalog so we were we were separated from touring and the industry side of things for for two years so it was like we could we could almost fully take stock of who we were and like what we'd done and and, and in some ways you don't do that because it feels gratuitous but like being being forced to do that it was really nice like i was actually really proud and like really proud of like and and, and felt really privileged and, and lucky of what we got to do over the years and i wouldn't have had that context otherwise and so when we came to write the album like it's the most enthusiastic i've been to write an album because i didn't really know if we'd get the chance to do that again and we knew exactly what we wanted to do like yeah we're just concentrating on, on all the good sides of like what we do you know like like we could we knew what was good and like what we liked best and like and what would work we just sort of knew what our best features were and we could just like we just focused on that and, and we really grabbed the opportunity with both hands because you don't know if you're going to We'd been away from things for so long. We didn't know we'd get that opportunity again. So it, there was the sort of, we had the sort of enthusiasm you had when you first made your debut album where you just like can't believe you get to be in a studio and can't believe you get to record. It was similar to that, coupled with this like this sort of self-awareness that we'd never had before. So so I think in, in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm really proud of how the record turned out, but in some ways I think it's sort of like, it, it's just sort of sums up like what's good about us. I think, it, I think we just played up all our best features and, and hopefully progress them a little bit. And as far as being at Foo Fighters Studio, then yeah, that was like that was kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, like to be offered that. It's not a, it's a, not a commercial studio; they don't let people just rent it. So to be offered that was like one, it was like incredibly generous from from Dave. But but two, it was like an opportunity that we knew we couldn't pass up. So we had to like do whatever it took to have that happen. Because me and Ryan and and later Ross, but like. Our formative experience of music was purely just like Nirvana were our favorite band in the world, and we lived by their rules, you know. Like, and we carried that. Like, I learned everything about my social politics from Nirvana, and 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 from my personal ethos towards things. Like, I learned so much from them, and and so to get to do that at, at Dave's place was just like, you know, it's an amazing culmination moment for us. But and then when we got to the studio, you know, you sort of surrounded by like. Foo Fighters, but also like Nirvana's like awards that they'd won, and like you know, like the, you go to the bathroom and it's like an MTV Music Award. It's like the toilet roll holder. It's like Nirvana stuff, and 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 so for us to be in there writing and recording, it's like it's really uh, inspiring because you're surrounded by the thing that's kind of lit the fire under under you in the first place, and so because of that. I mean, not that we we don't need motivating. We're, we're a very motivated band anyway. But but when you're in there, you just like you just feel the weight and the gravity of like, yeah, this is our chance to really step up, you know? Because we're surrounded by this stuff that like galvanized you in the first place. So we we just we just felt really, I don't know. It was it, it was kind of ideal, like it, like from a, from a romantic and an idealistic point of view, it was perfect for us, you know. We felt like 
comfortable in our own skin for the first time in forever and we felt really enthusiastic and, and optimistic and we also felt really motivated by the fact that yeah we were surrounded by the things that inspired us in the first place so i mean that might it might all sound a little bit um overly romantic but it was it, I, I, it couldn't have been a, it couldn't really have been a better situation to be honest yeah i don't think it'll sound overly romantic to people listening because i think that element of, you know, being in a room, making music and being inspired by the room, what would shock people is that it's strange how that doesn't happen all the time. But when it does, it's very special. I think it like signifies something important. Yeah, environment is is a, is a, like an intangible thing. Like sometimes like, you know, like we might have a space that's like actually quite depressing, but it's been for whatever reason, it ends up being a productive place or a really nice space and it's too nice and you just feel like, oh, this is like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel at home here. So the environment thing's like an intangible thing that you can't really put your finger on. But it, it does make a difference. But um, idealism is something that like quite quickly gets beaten out of bands. I would say like um, yeah. every, every band when they first start, that they all have that idealism and they all, all have that like sense of wonder that like really like that's why a lot of people make like really their first album is always their best thing because it's like when, when they didn't have they were totally non-jaded and and it's one of them things that like after people have been exposed to the commercial side of the industry or like the, the business elements that does take shine and that gloss off the people and and for us it's like we've always been super idealistic i think when when you're a band of brothers it's easier to be idealistic because you can vibe off each other and you can experience things through each other and and and, and it helps keep that spark alive. But for this album, like we were in a pretty dark place 2018 and 2019 for the most part. But that was something that was like a real, you know, oasis in the desert for us making the record and writing the record because it was pure escapism from all the issues that we had. You know, our idealism was like really like a, a big key factor in like in the in the writing process and also in the recording process. So like I have not even like even though it was born out of one of the hardest times I've experienced in, in my life, really. Um, it was almost like going through a divorce or something. And even though it was born out of those hard, hard times, I have no negative connotations with the album whatsoever. And, and, and I'm really, really happy about that, you know. That's really beautiful to hear. And, you know, something else that's interesting about the album as a whole, and I felt this way while listening to it, and I feel like a lot of people might, is that each Cribs album is different, but it does feel like the Cribs has a sound and I wonder if this is something you feel aware of or you know like how does it feel knowing that you and your brothers achieved that like creating a unique sound that when people hear this they know this is a crib song Do you know what? I, I get such a kick out of it and it's really nice to hear that as well because it's like sometimes you just think to yourself like you don't want to be retreading old ground like obviously like a song like, like a record like the new fellas that's like a fan favorite it's like I could never make her scenes again because like at that time I was like really angry <laughs> about something that was quite trivial but like that was the life I was living and it was really dominant in my thoughts at that time so I could never make that again now but then you worry that you will lose your edge or you will lose what it is that, that, that makes you who you are or defines like what your personality is but it's like but yeah I mean I've, I've listened to the catalogue over these last couple of years like I said I've had to like take stock of things it's like there is definitely like a lineage that runs through all the records and like as long as I feel like the, the current record is better and and an improvement and a refining of uh, an abatement of what went before it. Then I'm proud, and it's like, and it's funny because I listen to this and I'm like, 
yeah, like uh, when we released the, the first single, Running Into You, the, the reason why I wanted to do that is because like the label, like, oh, it's just like the classic crib sound and people respond to that. And it's like, it's funny because we don't really necessarily, we've never really acknowledged that we had a sound per se. Because, you know, you just, we just write instinctively. Like we just like, what what do we like to listen to? What do we want to hear? And, and that's how we write. It's not like other thought about or anything, but but yeah, it's nice because like if we feel like we progressed our sound and to the point where it's not redundant, it's not like I'm trying to regurgitate like 2005 or 2007 or whatever. It's like I feel like as long as we refine our sound and, and it's relevant, then I'm really happy about that. And it, and and it's cool that like it's never like it does. It the, all the albums do have something in common as well, I think. But I don't think the sound time stamped, and that's the thing I'm really happy about because like from our era. Like, you know, the 2000s, like, the early 2000s were extremely exciting and, like, very creative times. It was just a, I felt like there was a seismic shift in the early 2000s. Like, the old old school, like, record label model was kind of really, like, dated and, like, independent labels and independent promoters were really kind of running the game. And that, I think that was that was great that things were wrestled away from those, like, old school dinosaurs. But then the <laughs> second half of the 2000s, it was, like, you know, obviously the major labels and the traditional promoters and all that kind of stuff got involved as soon as as soon as things got big and broke through. I'm not speaking about for us personally. I mean, for like the scene and the bands in general. As soon as that started breaking through on a big commercial level, like it just it just went back to the same old paradigm. And that and so the, the, the latter half of that decade was pretty, you know, same old shit. You know, it just gets over commercialized and just essentially just like the death knell. Like just just start sounds straight away, but. As much as I'm still fond of like that 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 early period, and especially the early period of the band, it's like you know, if our sound had been like time stamped to that period, it would be it would be very difficult to still be making records now, you know, because yeah. like that that's the problem. If you're too perfect for the time, you if you if you had the sound of that year, I mean that's a cool thing, whatever. But if you have the sound of like 2000 whatever or 2020, then it doesn't. It's great for that period of time, but it doesn't last for very long. Like you struggle to shake that off, and I think like the fact that we were always slightly outside of what was the the in thing, we were always slightly outside of the zeitgeist, whether we were purposely like rejecting it or whether we just weren't deemed cool enough to be invited to those parties. Like <laughs> I think that ultimately helped us in the long run, you know. No, that makes a lot of sense to me, and you know, what I think as wild is that you know. For people listening who might not have the context for it, the period you guys came up in, um, you know, those early 2000s and, you know, the bands around that time. I mean, thinking back to it, that's the last, I feel like that's objectively the last time rock music felt vital overtly into the mainstream. Like, obviously, rock always matters. Like, anytime people talk about, you know, does guitar music matter anymore? I always like to say, well, go put on a band like Mets and you'll see that guitar definitely matters. But I think about like that period back then and like it's wild you got to be part of that like when it yeah. kind of cross-pollinated. No, I feel lucky. I mean, look, in some ways the 2000s have become a bit of a, pun- a cultural punching bag which which happens with every decade, you know, like it, and it happens with every movement for sure. And like I think the 2000s are currently like you know, experiencing that a little bit. And I think that I understand that because like, like I said, the second half of the 2000s, absolute glut of like band after band, like, you know, people were being discovered by MySpace and getting money thrown at them from major labels. And that, that did kind of uh, dilute and, and diminish what had happened before because p- people forget that the early part of the decade was really typified and defined by 
venerable independent labels like Sub Pop and Matador and Domino and Rough Trade and Wichita, they were running the they were essentially running the, the game, you know, and yeah. it's like and like and independent club nights and independent promoters, like it, it really felt like the sea change away from the old guard and that was that that was genuinely really exciting. It's kind of weird being in the position I am because I I don't think that I'm ancient by any means. I'm only 30. But like by virtue of what I do, I do uh, come into contact with a lot of younger people and talk about like, you know, different music scenes and music history. And when I find myself explaining this kind of time, this seismic shift that happened afterwards, I kind of explain it to people, younger people in a way where it's like, you know, there was a period where a lot of bands got songs and adverts by accident. And then after that, there were bands who started with the sole purpose of having their songs and adverts and no shade to those bands. But I just bring that up to say like, there's a difference between what started and what came after. And I think people forget that they kind of act like it's all this weird mesh when really it's a progression. It it was, as far as a decade goes, it wasn't like, it's kind of easy to pigeonhole it, but like, Really, the difference between the start of the decade and end of the decade, having lived through and been been an active band in both of them, was so radically different. And, and I think you're right with what you're saying. It's like like these grassroots bands like hit it big, like as in like really big, and and that just like lit a touch paper that all bets were off at that point. You know, like it was it, like everything everything changed. And I, in the UK, post Arctic Monkeys, like the the UK press had had this like weird like miss misread the situation they thought that the acting was like this like internet phenomenon that, that they built themselves but it wasn't really like that they were they were a local band in sheffield who all the kids on the internet were talking about you know and it wasn't that they built themselves that way it's like it was just purely like a, a grassroots like phenomenon and, yeah. and so they got really big and then and then what happened after that was the the, the big labels were just like using MySpace essentially as A and R. So it's like this band's got like all the kids talking about them on MySpace. And this song, whether they liked it the song or not, as long as they had one song that they could try and pitch to radio, they just it was like old school industry dinosaurs who didn't understand what the kids were doing, but were desperately trying to sort of read between the lines. You know, that capsized the ship a little bit in the UK really. Um but I don't you know, but it's not the People like used to think that we had an issue with it because we were always like, oh, we just want leaving out of that. Like, don't associate us with it. But I never had an issue with the bands. It's like, yeah, if you're like a 17-year-old band from Shrewsbury or somewhere like that, and a major label contacts you by MySpace and wants to sign you and send you to LA to work with like some big producers. Like, of course, that's like all these working class kids' dreams, you know? But by that point, we were, we were like three albums deep and like pretty old hands who'd come up through the DIY indie pop world and we're like, yeah, but like I have no, I have absolutely no regrets and no uh, shame in what happened in the early part of that decade because it was it was extremely exciting. You could hear the fucking Molly Peaches on Radio 1 at one point. I mean, <laughs> on, with record recorder on an 8-track. That was like, the, that has to be one of the most exciting. I, I, I just, it was, it was, it was amazing. I know what you mean. Like, I even think back to like a band like Klaxons and, you know, people can think what they want, but the fact that they had big songs, if you listen to those songs now, you, you kind of scratch your head a bit. You're like, wow, those songs were big at one point. Uh, I want to ask you about some of the songs on the album, particularly um, Screaming in Suburbia, because that's a song I fell in love with right when I heard it. And I feel like it's a track that encapsulates what I love about your band. Uh, which is how you have, like, you can at times have this intense sound, yet there's an adherence to melody. And I just want to know what it was like working on this truck. I'm really glad you picked up on that one, because it's like, that is one that, like, me and my brothers 
unanimously think is the best song on the record. Really? Um, yeah, it hasn't been... Like, we haven't done it as a single yet, but, like, every time that the label or the management want to talk about singles, all three of us just say we want to do Spinning in Suburbia. And it's, like, it's an interesting one because, like, that song... So when we were getting... I told you about the catalogue stuff. We were, we were, like, battling to get our catalogue back. We got it back and we got sent, like, tons of, like tapes and all that kind of stuff we were digitizing a bunch of our old rehearsal demos and we found that riff on there we we're like oh yeah like it was, it was fun when we were making men's needs women's needs whatever and we found that riff like oh yeah that's like that song's cool like forgot about that one and so we did, decided to develop it it nearly got cut from the record because it wasn't finished but then me and rye decided that like i would i would sing the verses and he would sing the choruses which we sometimes do like you know and that yeah. That made it feel really collaborative. He had all the chorus lyrics and like, and so I worked on the verse and like, so that, that song is like really like, as far as like the band's DNA, it's like, it's kind of the most pure because it's like, it's all of us and it's, and some parts of it are taken from old tapes and stuff. And yeah, like I, lyrically, like that line screaming in the suburbia was something Ryan said, like before he said that the sound of the cribs is the sound of like three kids screaming in suburbia. <laughs> and I thought, and, and, and it's, I thought it was a cool line. And like, so like when we were writing this song, I was like, I think we should could put that in there. And again, it, it felt quite pure because it's, it's his line, but it was my idea to put it in there. So it was like, it was really collaborative. And like, it does kind of sum us up in a lot of ways. The way you described that just now is very much how I would describe the cribs. And, um, you know, um, yeah. Another track that really took me by surprise was Under the Bus Station, because I felt like that's an example of a track that feels inspired by its environment. And I wonder if that was the case, because, like, I think this will catch me by surprise. It does feel very West Coast in a way. Yeah, well, actually, with that song, we were going for, like, a Motown influence on that one. And it's like, because I listen to a lot of Motown music and be like, it's so evergreen and so indelible like you just the melodies are just so like strong but the progressions are actually quite unusual and awkward and i think that that's the making of a great pop song it's like if, if you have an unusual progression but the melody makes it sound harmonically normal i think that that's like really like really potent with under the bus station plot that's what we were kind of going for lyrically that's that's about again it's going for that motown thing it's like it's, it's a kind of a sentimental song about like about a specific place like um being a kid from wakefield like in the in the pre-smartphone era when you <laughs> would arrange to meet someone you'd arrange to meet under the bus station clock because the all the buses ran to the bus station and the clock told you what time it was so you could be like i'll meet you at one o'clock under the bus station clock so that was the oh where it came from and so I, again i felt like that was kind of like in the vein of like a motown like songbook sort of idea so yeah that's it that's another one actually that like sort of people picked up on i i'm really into that one it's sort of like when we were first writing it i thought it could be a single but then once we put the album together i don't know it sort of forgot about it a little bit but um that that was our experiment from trying to write a motown song anyway that was the best effort yeah, I, I think people are going to respond really strongly to that one. I also think people are going to respond to my favorite track off the album, which is The Weather Speaks Your Name. I think fans are really going to love it. Oh, man, that's that's one of Rise. That's that that's definitely one of Rise. Like, very riff-orientated and, like, has, like, a couple of different sections that kind of were difficult to make work together. Like, it's, it's along the lines of, like, Pink Snow and stuff like that. But, yeah, he, he was kind of obsessed with that one. 
You know, I miss live music so much. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I found myself re like throughout this whole pandemic, I've been rewatching like old concerts. And a few weeks ago, I found myself rewatching the show you guys did at uh, Millennium Square in Leeds and watching that. I know this is quite a big word to use, but it reminded me how live music can feel heroic. Like the way you guys were on stage, it just felt like within that moment, within that like day, whatever you guys ate or drank, it left you feeling as though this is what we're supposed to be doing. And it just felt really good watching. Them. That was the, yeah, John, it's weird for me to say this, but it's kind of the vibe we were going for because like doing the, doing a big outdoor headline show yeah. in your own, own town, or like, you know, your closest big city was like, you know, it's a big dream for a band. And, and, and so we pulled out all the stops for that. And like, obviously we're really big Queen fans. And we're just like, you would watch Queen like do these like yeah. stadium shows and just command them so well. And we were just like, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to go and play to a few thousand people outdoors in Leeds, we're going to have to like, you know, we're going to have to come off like that, you know? I think like, I think, Obviously, like when you can when you can get that many people to the show, and like it, it does help, like make you feel empowered anyway. And so, yeah, we got ourselves really psyched. So we, we treated that like that was our that was our Wembley '86. That was our <laughs> that was our signature show, you know. So we really went for it, and it was like, and the whole night ended up being this beautiful thing because like the weather the weather stayed nice, and like um, the scenery was really nice, and like we and first of March first which was just a dream you know like like growing up in wakefield like you know 30 minutes down the road my brothers would listen to sonic youth in in my bedroom and just like these were like these were like godlike figures from across the ocean you know so to have him opening up for us was like that also made it really special the whole night yeah the whole thing was just really special it's like and um yeah we felt like we had to step up to the plate and and be we we were, we were trying to be queen that evening you know? yes <laughs> I love that I picked up on that. I love that heroic is a word yeah, you would agree. No, I'm, I'm glad, man. It's like means we pulled it off, you know. Yeah. It's not, that's not a time like we're we're not like into the big rock and roll like rock star stuff, but like that was our night where we're like we have to step up to the plate tonight, you know. We have to we have to do it. So we we did it, you know. <laughs> uh, before I let you go here, I just have a couple more questions for you, and one of them is like. It's kind of interesting because, you know, we're recording this uh, in October and I think we're like about, yeah, roughly two weeks away from the U.S. election. By the time people hear this, it already happened. So, you know, who knows where the world will be. But um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about what it's been like, you know, being a Brit living in the U.S. going through all this. Because I grew up in London as a bit as a kid. I was born here in New York, raised a bit in Stratford, and I kept going back and forth for, you know, up until I was yeah. like around 10. So I have that kind of duality of understanding what it's like. And what's funny about even though living here in New York and America most of my life is I can honestly say I'm still confused as to how we got here politically. Like yeah. I, even I don't know. Do you know what, man? This is the worst. This has been the worst four years to have that duality of understanding of like both British and US culture because so like I'm I'm a disenfranchised voter. I can't I can't vote in the United States, and I wasn't allowed to vote in the Brexit referendum in 2016. Now, both the, both the 2016 election in the US and the 2020 election in the US and the Brexit referendum, they're like such fundamental um, votes that have such profound impacts for my life. That the fact that I that I've been disenfranchised is like is 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 really upsetting to me, you know. But um so I haven't had a I haven't had a say over any of this stuff. I haven't even had a voice in any of it, which is 
which is frustrating, but it's been a difficult time for me. The, the Brexit vote had a, had a profound effect on my life. And then shortly afterwards, so and, and I came back from the UK. Um, I was in the UK when it happened. I came back and I was like, I was quite shell-shocked, actually. I was really depressed. And, and then I got back in the October, and then, of course, the November elections happened in 2016. And it, nobody expected Trump to win, and he did. And I was all of a sudden right back down into that yeah. depression again. It was the dub, real double whammy. It, but it, I think there was like real similar. I mean, it, obvious to say, but there's real similarities between Brexit and 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 the Trump. But it, it was like people just playing up to people's fears and and selling them something based not on not on what they actually want, but based on aggravating and, and turning people against the other side. So yeah. it was like the politics of division before the before they even before these things even happened like and it's all just this like obviously it's, it comes from a very negative place in the first place but it's all just this idea of like telling people what they want to hear like it's just like and i feel like 2016 was the, the year that six it just exposed how much xenophobia there still is in in the west you know what i mean i think people were just ignoring it for a long time and 2016 was the year when it was like it became okay to be ignorant you know, because like because they were they were legitimized as ignorance was legitimized as a political position, and that that to me was like why people why you know and there was also the protest vote element, people thinking like oh if I do this it's really gonna like fuck shit up. It's like you know make really send a statement, and you know aside from being really reckless, it, it wasn't based on like it, it was just based on burning shit down for some people, and then and then other people it's like yeah I, I feel like 2016 was the year that was exposed how exposed a lot of ignorance no i know what you mean and i think something that something that's been weighing heavily on my mind these last couple months i would even go as far as say the year because you know even with being american the uk is like a second home to me and i go all the time and the politics that happen there definitely have an influence on my life just by uh, from a professional standpoint as well and you know something that bugs me of having that dual understanding of what life is like in the u.s and the uk I think the sad reality is, knowing how people are, I could see in 10 years' time how people will look at this time and think like, wow, that was a weird time, while not admitting that, you know, citizens, that regular everyday people, did have a role to play. Like, I think that yeah. the ne it's necessary to have an area and time of reflection that I feel like both our nations aren't good at doing. No, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's when, when you look at the leaders... Like like Johnson's been Boris Johnson and, and actually like the architects of the vote leave campaign in the UK in the first place it was all about just promising people everything that they ever wanted without any sort of like without any grounding in reality and without and like with Johnson as a figurehead without any sort of knowledge or political noose of how to get things done and Trump was the same thing like he's like you know he's not a politician like some people like that about him like which is fucking weird but like some people like the fact that he was this, this like this this guy that told everyone what the, told a certain group of people exactly what they wanted to hear but it's like you know obviously it, both situations were a shit show before the pandemic but i almost felt like it, i used to have, I, I had this feeling like because 2020 was so chaotic i was like it almost felt like it's some sort of higher power that sent the pandemic to just expose like how flawed this is because these people were trying to coast by like bluster and, and, and hyperbole and, 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 and tricking people into thinking everything was good. 
problem. I mean, there was a point, I, I was following the, I mean, I followed the political news pretty closely, but the, I was following the, the coronavirus charts very closely at the start, like all the first few months, because obviously I, I've got family in New York and I've got family in the UK and I was worried about people. And, you know, I, for some reason, I thought like watching the charts was like a prudent thing to do. But, but there was a whole period of time where it's like you look at the statistics by case amount and by death amount and the top people, the top countries were the United States and then uh, Brazil, United Kingdom and Russia. And you look at it and you're like, oh, shit. Nation, I guess nationalism doesn't work in a fucking pandemic. Who would have thought? <laughs> you know? It just seems so obvious. It just yeah. like it's like you've got these like nationalist leaders who just like who don't cooperate, like who are like trying to put their country first all the time. Like, oh yeah, it just it, it almost seemed like so grimly predictable. But, it, but like I said, I almost I went through this phase of thinking like there's some case, some kind of universal order just trying to expose the charlatans or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, one of the big reasons I wanted to bring this up is because you're in such a unique situation, not just with, you know, being a Brit living here, but also the fact that I personally know from my travels how weird Portland could be, because it's almost kind of like an, um, I would akin it to an Austin, where you have this very blue, vibrant city that's in a state that's essentially very red and kind of rough in a lot of ways. Yeah, when, when you, I mean... I identify very closely with being a Portlander. It's a, just a huge part of my life, and it has been for a, a long time. And, and I'm very proud of this city, and I'm very proud of how it dealt with the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, not, 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 not on a necessarily on a political level, but I mean, just like as the, the people, like the conscientious nature towards each other, and the tolerance, and the uh, and the civic sense of civic duty. I think that was like really impressive. Um, but yeah, Portland, like I, I do get out of the city. Like, I, I was in Eastern Oregon for a little while, like, this summer. Um, and, you know, I also go, like, rural parts to, like, visit lakes and stuff in the summer. And, like, yeah, I mean, it, it does get quite trumpy out there, you know. But I think that fundamentally, that, I mean, that, that's pretty typical of, like, most rural places. And I, I try to, like, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Wakefield, which is in, in West Yorkshire, which is an unusual uh, it gives my perspective is unusual because that that was fundamentally a labour stronghold based on its um, based on its history as uh, as being a, a industrial town. But that doesn't. But the UK it's not it's not like labour and Tory. The the division is not based. On, it's not like liberal and conservative. Like yeah. like I, I I grew up in a labour town, but people's viewpoints and were not progressive at all. So like I've always tried to be understanding of people who don't have the same worldview as me and like but it's it's been harder in this situation in the fact that i mean portland almost became like symbolic i mean it, it was hard to see portland become a symbolic thing and, and, a, and a political pawn that was being used nationally because like i said this is a beautiful city and, and the people are, are very um conscientious and and that's why we had a lot of civil unrest because not not because they're not because they're angry and trying to burn stuff down, which is like what we were trying to portray. No, because they feel a moral responsibility to to stand up for injustices that they were seeing. Like Portland's very motivated like that, and so it was almost like they were using the good, all the things that I consider to be good about this city was, was being used as a cudgel against them. And that's what that's when you realize you just like well, not 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 when you realize, but it, it just it just helped to like clarify just how perverted this whole argument has been over the whole period of time because it's like it's essentially like trying to portray this city as being lawless and, and, and 
and populated by bad people does not square with the reality in this city whatsoever. And it, it gave me like this profound view of like how propaganda is disseminated because I, like I would get phone calls and, and, and contacted by family members when I'd be in bed, I'd wake up on a morning and I'd have a bunch of messages, like people were worried about me and I'd be like, whoa, like what's going on? And, it, you know, they'd be like, oh, on the news, like saying that Portland's on fire. And I'm looking out of my window <laughs> on, on, a, on a beautiful summer morning. It's like, you know, it was all focused on the on just one block, essentially, downtown. And there were no problems there until the Senate and the feds to try and squash protesters anyway. It was like, it, it just gave me a real view of like how this kind of authoritarian propaganda has like been able to disseminate in like you know countries where it was previously an abstraction to me. You know, yeah. it's just been hard to find like a balance, like a, a mental balance this year. You know. Yeah, and I, I would just like to add for people listening who've never been that like when you mentioned the propaganda aspect, it truly is that because for people who have never been to Portland, it is arguably the safest place you could be in America, in contrast That's- to so many other places. Absolutely. And like, and I say this as a, you know, fully paid up Portland resident, like the friendliest and most thoughtful place that I've ever, that I've ever been. And I've, I've been, at, I've, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been to many great cities. But um, when I moved here, I was just like, I couldn't believe how sort of idyllic it, it, it was in, in many ways, you know. It was upsetting to see, like, Portland as being portrayed as something that, like, is so so far from the reality of, of who we are. Like, it just makes you realise, like, how destructive those politics of division are. No, I can slightly relate to what you're talking about because I remember um, my favourite place for, in the States from touring is Chicago. And uh, from growing up in high school, in the news, Chicago is always used kind of like as a political pawn because of like right. gang violence. And, you know, growing up here and seeing that in the news, it kind of warps your brain and seeing it one way. But the times I've been to Chicago, it's such a like the people are so lovely and it's such a amazing city that, yeah, it shocks me how that's not um, brought up enough. Like what a great place it is. Yeah. And the politics of fear, like, you know, and that's why I'm so fucking miserable right now, you know, because it's like, you, it, if, if, you, if you're constantly telling people to be afraid and, like, to fear their neighbours and to, like, and to worry about stuff, if, that, if that's the only chops that you have as a politician, then, of course, like, the, the national mood is just going to fall into chaos and close to, you know, like, civil war at times, you know. Yeah. I, I used to think, like, will America survive another four years? That used to sound very dramatic. Now I'm just, like, has it only been four years? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I can't imagine where we, things would go from here. Like, it's like... I don't either. Uh, I mean, it's quite darkly funny knowing people are going to be listening to this after the election and we're sat here yeah. and it's it's darkly funny to just think that we have no idea where the world's going to be two weeks from now. Like, we don't. <laughs> like, we really well, don't. You know, like, there are some things that's like, you know, like I said, I've become quite optimistic recently. There are some things that I think, some good that will hopefully come out of this is that like the political engagement of young people is is so important and i think that like young people are very politically astute now and i think that our generation or that sorry their generation after having to deal with this pandemic and having to deal with this reality they will not like ideas that like people used to try and dismiss as being like socialist or like you know like wacky or whatever which is ridiculous that shit like not having any sort of like social safety net for people in a pandemic 
like has blown this facade up. And you will see a shift in politics towards something that is more a more level playing field for people because it's like this this situation has exposed how flawed like some of those belief systems are. You know, hopefully, like just see a new gen- new generation of leaders come out of this who are like way way more in touch with the common people as opposed to just being this like old like this old school kind of old boys club really i hope that's the case uh before i let you go i just have one more thing to ask you and it's about how well i remember that when you guys announced that you were back and announced the album there was like a lot of fan reaction and you guys the band put a note online about you know where it seemed that you guys were essentially taken surprised by that and i, I wanted to ask about that like did that they really take you by surprise in that way. It did, you know, and and, it, and it's really nice because it's like if you go away for a long time, you never really know if people are going to still be there. And like we've been lucky that we've had a good fan base over the years, and, and it's been pretty solid because of like how it was built, and it hasn't been fad based or whatever. So we've been like, you know, we, we were always aware of that, but like you never really know how people are going to respond. Like after you've been gone for a long time, it's like. Does absence make the heart grow fonder? You know, you just never really know. Yeah, it was great. And like, obviously, we've been mentally, uh, we'd had a hard time over like the two years where we've been trying to get the catalog back. And then like the pandemic starting as well. It's like people had bigger issues to worry about. But it's like, it was it was humbling and just really, yeah, it was, it was great, you know. And, and you, you should never take stuff like that for granted. If you take it for granted and expect everyone to be there, You've, you've lost that idealism that I was talking about earlier. When it surprises you like that, that's such a positive kick that, like, I'm glad that we don't take it for granted. So if you took it for granted, you wouldn't get that buzz, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you think about that, like, what does it mean to know that the band is still here? Like, I mean, next year, uh, I don't know if you, you've probably thought about this considering the pandemic, next year, it'll be the 20th anniversary of the band. And that's longer than most marriages. <laughs> like, that's, like, that's an incredible thing. It's cool. I mean, but there's also that element of like, I never expected to be doing it for this long. I, I, I always figured that like, I would run it out as long as I could get it for and then go off and do, you know, start my life properly. You know, it's how you always think. And it's weird when you have that moment of acceptance, like, oh, I guess this actually is my life, you know, because it's been, I was 20 years old when I started this band or 21 or whatever. And I turned 40 the other day. Sobering in a lot of ways. It's like, oh, I'd, I always figured that, like, by 30, I would have had a good run and that I'd be able to probably settle down and do something different then. But you know, you always feel really lucky that there's still, like, people who want you to do it and it's hard to pass that up. But yeah. acknowledging that this is essentially what I have done with my life and, like, will be, you know, I haven't left myself any chance to do anything else. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, Gary, thanks so much for catching up with me, man. This was lovely. I'm, I'm so... Yeah. Glad we got to do this, and I know people are going to love hearing this. I mean, thanks for being so open, man. Me too. I really enjoyed it, man. It's like, that's the thing. I think, like, interviews at this in these times are just, like, way more open and conversational than there would be any other time. Like, you know, it's like, I, I, I just, it's nice to have somebody else to talk to. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.